And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 23. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 56. Certainty in a world of doubt, Gospel of Luke. Do you get it? That's the title of this weekend's uh, message. Punch the person next to you and say, pay attention so that you will get it, okay? Boom. Make sure you get it. Here we go. So we have spent over a year in the Gospel of Luke. It's it's the longest we've spent in any book. Uh, We broke the record of our Genesis study a number of years ago that we did. We went through the book of Genesis in a year, but now we're over a year in the Gospel of Luke. And we are coming to the end of the book and to the climax of the story, which is the crucifixion, resurrection, and the commissioning of Jesus, and then, of course, his ascension. And it's almost as if Luke is asking us, as we hit the end of the book, I have given you all of this information about Christ. Have you responded in such a way that it has brought transformation to your life? I've given you all this information about Christ. Have you responded to it in such a way that it has brought transformation? The information should be be transforming to your life. In other words, do you get it? Have you had a life-transforming encounter with Christ? Luke chapter 1, verse 4 is really the thrust of this whole study, this whole book. You guys remember, uh, Luke is writing uh, to his friend. We're not sure who this is, but uh, he's a lover of God, it says. That's what his name represents. But he says, I'm telling you this. I'm giving you this information. I'm giving you all these. I did all this research so that you can have certainty about the things you have been taught What are the things that we have been taught? It's about Jesus, so you can have certainty in a world of doubt. And so in this uh, text we're looking at here this uh, morning, it's the crucifixion account of Christ. In the crucifixion account of Christ, some get it and some don't. So here's where we're headed. You can see on the notes, who gets it, what do they get, and how do they get it? But more importantly, you need to get it, okay? And so we want to make sure that you get it more than anything. So this, that's going to help us. So would you bow your heads with me just uh, once again? And uh, I know this is a crazy, busy time of the year, but it's always good for us to, to, to regularly step out of the traffic and take a long, loving look at our high God. And that's what I want us to do here this morning. Just take a moment, take a deep breath. And so, Father God, we know that this is a very sacred and divine moment as we study and reflect on the crucifixion of our Savior. The entire storyline of the Bible, the Gospel of Luke, the longing of human history culminates in this most important death of the most important person in the history of the world. And so may our familiarity of this story not breed complacency, but may may we see more clearly that everyone's destiny for eternity hangs in the balance based on whether, on whether we get it and how we respond to it. So we pray that sleepy Christians would wake up, nominal Christians would get saved, 
and your church would become more beautiful, reaching those who are hard to reach, may our seeing Jesus lose his beauty to make us beautiful, make him even more beautiful to us in his holy and glorious name. And everyone said... Amen. So take a look at uh, Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one. So he's headed towards uh, the skull, this place where he's going to be crucified. And so they led him away. They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him, but turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? He's going to explain that. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What in the world is he talking about here? Let me just give you just a brief understanding of this, and then we'll continue to read through. When he says, don't weep, he's saying, don't weep for me, but weep for yourself. Why? And he explains it, because the judgment of God that is coming will be so horrible that people will be crying out for the mountains to fall on them. And, uh, and so as Christians, we should be concerned about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And that's what he's talking about here, eternal suffering. See, with Jesus' first coming, he came to bear our judgment. But if I reject Jesus with his second coming, he will bring judgment and you will face him. That's, the Bible is very clear, and that's what he's talking about here. And let's continue reading here, verse 32. Two others who were criminals, were led away to to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, we got to talk a little bit about this because the Bible gives us few details about crucifixion. And the reason for that is uh, because the original audience had witnessed many crucifixions. They were very familiar with it. And um, it was created by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, who reserved it as the most painful mode of torture, the most painful mode of torture and execution for the most despised people. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. The pain of crucifixion is, is so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. Anybody know what that word is? It's excruciating. And that word literally means out of the cross. So anytime you use that word excruciating, you're actually talking about the cross. It means out of the cross. And it tells us in Isaiah 52, 14, now this is prophetic, which came to pass in our Savior Jesus. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Now, if you had witnessed a crucifixion, 
If you had watched a loved one being crucified, you would be shaken to the core of your being, probably physically and emotionally just shaken all the way down, maybe even uncontrollably vomiting and weeping and, and forever traumatized the rest of your life. I mean, I think it's, if you think about our, our soldiers that come back from war, why do you think so many of our soldiers come back uh, from war with PTSD or even suicidal? It's because of the trauma of war, the devastation, seeing their, their fellow soldiers, their bodies mangled and strewn. And, and so this is, you're getting a, a you're, you're beginning to see this through, through the story of, of crucifixion and our Savior. Now keep in mind, this is the God of the galaxies being crucified for you and I. If you saw the movie a number of years ago, 2004, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, you got a little bit of a hint of that. Anybody see that movie? Show of hands. I, I wept through most of the movie. I had to kind of brace myself just to go into the movie. I was just like, oh my goodness. And I, when I went in there, I just, I had a Kleenex box. I think I went completely through a whole Kleenex box. And that was a movie. So, so what we're getting here, we're getting a glimpse as we glimpse into this uh, horrible uh, event and yet unbelievable event. Unbelievable. Brutal and yet unbelievably beautiful when we understand the implications of this. Look at verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't that amazing that he would say that? Our Savior, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Now, this is one of the great ironies in all of Scripture. He saved others, let him save himself. He saved others because he wouldn't save himself. They didn't get it. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Now, this is really significant. This is where most of our studies really, we're going to be looking at this. But one of the, one of the criminals, we've always known of them as the thieves, but I, it's more accurate to call them a criminal. Thieves wouldn't be hung on a cross, these guys murdered someone. They did something really worse than thievery, okay? You need to keep that in mind. That's why it's, it's better. They're better termed criminals. So one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I want you to notice the contrast between the two now. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, if you don't believe in deathbed conversions, you should, because here's one right here, okay? And by the way, I've, I've been a part of a, a number of deathbed conversions where I've led people to the Lord just before they, just moments before they took their last breath. It, God, God can be there in a powerful way. And, um, and so in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, so this is noon. He's already been on the cross for three hours. 
And so it's now about the sixth hour noon, and there was darkness. So the brightest part of the day, it becomes dark. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until three o'clock. So while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You know the significance of that? We're going to talk about that. That is amazing. Now that curtain, so it was torn in two from top to bottom. Anybody know the thickness of the curtain? It's four inches thick. Four inches thick, torn in two. It had to have been done by God, okay? Man cannot do that. And so the implications of it are stunningly beautiful. And so we'll get there. We'll talk about that. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Tells us in Isaiah 53, 3, Once again, prophecy, predicting, but this all came true. It was fulfilled. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's Isaiah 53.3 and Isaiah 53.5. Listen to this. This is good. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it, wrapped it in a, a, a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is God's holy word to us this morning. So, okay, here we go. Who gets it? That's the first thing we're going to look at. Who gets it, what do they get, and how do they get it? So who gets it? Let's go through this. This is your fill-in-the-blanks on your notes. So who gets it from this story? First of all, a moral outsider. That's your first fill-in-the-blank, a moral outsider. And the moral outsider is the second criminal, verse 39. The first criminal railed at Christ, but the second criminal, verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So a moral outsider. Here's another one that gets it is the racial outsider, the centurion. And that's verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now what's fascinating about this is that Luke uses 
the term praised God, and when you study through the Gospel of Luke, he uses this some six times. And so six times in the book, and every time it's when someone perceives the saving power of God. And so for a centurion, a calloused, hardened leader of 100 soldiers, he was a paid executioner by the state. For him to look at Jesus dying on the cross and not see just the death of another criminal, but to praise God, why would he do that? Because he's being impacted by the life of Christ. It's it's Luke's way of saying he's, he's beginning to get it. So you've got... You've got a moral outsider, a racial outsider, now you've got a social outsider. You've got the group of women, verses 55 and 56. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how, and how his body was laid, and then they returned and, and prepared spices and ointments. So you've got verses throughout this text about the women. Now, what's interesting about this is that all the disciples had abandoned Jesus. Judas had betrayed him, Peter denied him, and the only ones that are left uh, that are not afraid to associate with Jesus are the group of women. And what you've got to keep in mind is that women were extremely marginalized in this culture, treated like a piece of property, and in fact, in this culture, they had no social power whatsoever, and so that's why we would put them in the category of social outsiders. So you've got this group of women who are, are really getting it to some degree, Now, if we were to stop there, you would think, and and especially when you look at the pattern throughout Scripture, but you would think that Jesus came to receive those those the world calls failures, losers, and outcasts, and he rejects uh, the respectable, the rich, and the powerful. And, And then we come to the last one who seems to get it, and that's the moral, racial, and social insider, Joseph of Arimathea, verses 50 through 53. And he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. And so that's, that's interesting. So what does all of this mean? So we're talking about those who get it, a moral outsider, racial outsider, a social outsider, and then a moral, racial, and social insider. What does all of that mean? What does that mean? Here's your next thought on, on your notes. You are never so good, you are never so good that you don't need God's grace and so bad that you can't receive God's grace. That's the big idea here. It's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor is is what grace is uh, to us. And you you can't earn it and you can't unearn it. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. His favor If you have his favor, you got it made. If you don't have his favor, you're doomed for all eternity. So it's make or break whether or not you you have his favor. And you can't earn his favor. And you can't unearn his favor. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you don't know how bad. You can't unearn it. You can't earn it. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how bad you are. You can't earn it. You can't unearn it. It's a gift. It's a gift. It was accomplished for us by the cross. Think about that just for a minute. I mean, just think of the implications of that. They're they're pretty powerful. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. This is spectacular. This is amazing. 
God's favor a gift from God? Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, God's grace is his unmerited favor giving to us nothing less than himself. We have God. We have a relationship with God. Now, here's another point that I think that we need to understand is that the outsiders tend to get it before the insiders do because insiders, when we're talking insiders, successful, powerful, affluent, and moral, have a pride-induced spiritual blindness. So, so let me say that again. The outsiders tend to get it before the insiders do because insiders, successful, powerful, affluent, moral people have a pride-induced spiritual blindness. And I think that's the other point that we, we can get from this also. I mean, just in, in general in life. I've had people say to me, well, the reason why that person doesn't get it, very affluent people, they've said, they've talked about affluent people, people that were really wealthy, and I said, well, the reason why they don't get it is because they're so intelligent. And I always say, well, it's not because they're so intelligent, it's because they're so proud. It's not intelligence, there's plenty of evidence giving validity and veracity to the reality of Christ and, and the scriptures. They just, they just refuse to do the research. They, they're just full of themselves, so that's their problem. And, uh, and so it's, not an, it's never an intellectual thing. It's typically a, a moral thing. Uh, John 3, 19, Jesus said, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. So it's not, it's not an intellectual issue whatsoever. It's a pride issue. It always is a pride issue. Now think about your loved ones that don't know the Lord. It's always going to be about pride. Now, there might be some information you can certainly share with them, but typically, until their heart, and they begin, as we talk about this here, you're going to realize that it's more about the pride that, that prevents them from really seeing. To feel no need for God or to be indifferent toward God is not only to be out of touch with reality, but the essence of self-conceit and self-deception. And so to be in touch with the reality of God, what does that mean? It means to have a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and to tremble at the privilege of knowing and obeying and serving him. See, the Bible calls that the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. You're not even on track until you begin with that level of wisdom. You're beginning to get it. When you have that joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of God, and you tremble at the fact, I can't believe I have God. I get God. I have Him. I'd rather have Him than anything else in life. And that's, that's really understanding that you're, you're in touch with reality. You're beginning to get it. Now, why do, why do outsiders get it before insiders? Because insiders tend to be more religious. And the reason why there's pride, it's, it's really based on religion. This is what separates Christianity from the major uh, religions of our world today. So the major, so if anybody were to ever ask you, what's the difference between Christianity and all the other religions? Here it is right here. All the other religions, belief systems are religion, the good are in. This is your fill in the blank. The good are in, the bad are out. It's about earning, achieving, being deserving. God owes me because, hey, I'm a good person. Of course I'm going to heaven. I've done a lot of really good things for people. The average American believes that. If you ask the average American if they're going to heaven, they're going to say, yep. And you're going to say, so what's the basis of you going to heaven? Because I'm basically a good person. Absolutely. And they, that's religion. It's pride is what it is. 
It's pride. I'm a, I'm a good person. Have you seen how much I've done? Have you seen how, much, how many people I've helped? I, I shared with you a number of months ago about an interview I saw on 60 Minutes by Bloomberg, and he actually believes he's going to heaven, and the interviewer asked him, 60 Minutes interview asked him, so why are you going to heaven? So he said, I'm, I've done a lot of good for people. My billions of dollars have helped a lot of people. Quit smoking and and stop drinking those terrible drinks that are bad for them there in New York City and, you know, the crazy stuff that he, he's tried to do. But, uh, but he actually believes it. It's based on this religious attitude, the good are in, the bad are out, but the gospel, the humble are in and the proud are out. So in religion, the good are in, the bad are out. So there's a standard and you've got to meet the standard. So I must have been meeting the standard because when I worked out at Palo Verde, I had a Mormon guy who was a bishop. Mormon church said, hey, you'd make a good Mormon. That's what he told me. And he, they, he got me, he brought me uh, for, I think it was for Christmas or something, brought me a, a, uh, a book. It was like three in one, four in one, a book of the Bible, Doctrine of Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and a uh, book of Mormon, kind of all in one. I go, cool, thanks. I don't believe any of this, but I'm, thank you for that. But, uh, but he just said I'd be a really good Mormon because I hit all their standards. I hit all their standards. And so, uh, and so what's, what's interesting about it is the gospel's totally opposite. You can't hit the standards and be good enough. You can't hit the standards and be good enough. So it's not based on how good you are or how bad you are. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift. The humble are in and the proud are out. It's, so it's not about earning, achieving, and, and being deserving that God owes me. No, no. When you understand grace, you listen to me. You are forever. You feel forever indebted to God. I owe him. I owe him. I owe him because of what he's done for me. See, and that's, what, that's how you begin to really understand it. All you need is Need. All you need is need, and proud people are out of touch with the reality of their needs. So let me, let me summarize this before we move on to the next question of what do they get. I'm kind of hinting at what they get here a little bit, but, but listen to me. Everybody look up here. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't even matter what has been done to you. Did you know that? No sin that you have committed and no sin that has been committed against you is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So we see, you know, that's who get it, but what do they get? What do they get? Here's what they get. Now, now how do we have a life-changing encounter with Christ? And so you've got to look at the contrast between the two criminals, verses 39 through 40. And the first thing that we learned from their lives is that don't, don't follow the crowd. You can't follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching. So you got this group of people standing by watching, giving approval. But we also see the rulers scoffed at him. Verse 36, the soldiers mocked him. Now what's fascinating about this is that the Jewish rulers and the, and the brutal Roman soldiers never agreed on anything. But they agree on this. They agree on this, that this can't be the Messiah. A dying man can't be the savior of the world. So they scoff and mock him together. And in verse 39, we see even one of the criminals railed at him. Now why is that one criminal railing at him? Because he's going along with the crowd. He's doing what the crowd's doing. Verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, 
This is what he's saying. This crowd doesn't get it. They're looking at the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world, and they don't get it. It tells us in uh, Matthew 7, 14, I've been often asked, um, you know, how many people will actually get it? How many people will go to heaven compared to those that will land in hell? Have you ever thought about that? You know, is there going to be more people in heaven than hell? And, and let me answer that question for you from God's word. And Matthew 7, 14 says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are, are few. Are few. Now, that should shake us a bit. It also tells us, and it gives us kind of the litmus test of this whole gospel reality and where your heart might be here this morning. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here's the litmus test. If you think it's folly what I'm talking about here this morning, which many, many people do, you're perishing. But if you see what we're talking about here is the power of God, you're being saved. That's the litmus test. What's your perspective of this? Do you get it? Do you understand what the implications of the cross are all about? And so we gotta take this a little bit further. So what, what is it about the cross? What should, when I look at the cross, as I take communion, as we take communion here this morning, what are we celebrating? What is this about? Here's the next point on your notes. I'm terribly sinful and wonderfully loved simultaneously. And, and you see this so powerfully in this second criminal, in verses 41 and 42, he says, don't you fear God? He's talking to the other criminal. He said, don't you fear God? And then in verse, verse 42, he says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I, I want us to kind of reflect on that just for a moment. These are powerful words that he's speaking here, and, and I think he's actually depicting this, I'm terribly sinful and then wonderfully loved at the same time. I mean, it's logical to say, hey, I deserve to be punished, so punish me. That's, that would be logical. Or, I deserve to be rewarded, so reward me. But what the second criminal is saying, I deserve to be punished, so reward me. That's what he's saying here. I deserve to be cast out, so take me in. I deserve to go to hell, so please take me to heaven. That's what he's saying. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's grace. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. If you were to ask a moralist, what do you think about that statement? I'm terribly sinful and wonderfully loved simultaneously. A moralist would say, well, I like the first part. But the second part, ah, you know, people, people are sinful. Yeah, I like that. But, but they need to earn God's love. They need to work hard. That, that's what a moralist would say. How about someone that's very liberal, maybe a liberalist in our culture today? They would say, well, we like the second part, but not the first. God loves everyone. But that's psychologically unhealthy to call people sinners because people are basically good. And it's their chromosomes or their conditioning or their circumstances that make them bad. That's why you don't follow the crowd, okay? 
because they tend to go to these extremes. Now listen to me, you gotta get this. It's only, it's only to the degree that you see your dire condition without Christ that you are terribly sinful is to the degree that the magnitude of his provision, I'm wonderfully loved, brings a healthy, balanced psychology of humble confidence. Humble confidence. That's what ultimately transforms your heart. You've got to see that. The more you realize how little you deserve and how much you have received through the gospel, the more you will be filled with indescribable and indestructible joy. See, if you don't have indescribable and indestructible joy, if you're not living in the reality of how little you deserve and how much you have received. See, the default mode of our heart is typically we fall prey to the fact that I'm very religious and, well, I, d- I deserve, a, I'm really a good person. No, no, you're not, actually, no. No, you were doomed for hell for all eternity and Jesus stepped in and died in your place for your sins to redeem you and to rescue you. See, that's the gospel message. Can, can you see why proud people don't, don't want to hear that? They don't get it. They don't want to. That's not healthy to tell people they're sinners. You're basically a good person. That's not what the Bible teaches. And, and why, was Jesus, why did Jesus die on the cross? Because we're doomed. And he came to rescue us. So think about this just for a minute. How could I ever feel superior to anyone when I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me? Why, why would I feel holier than thou, sanctimonious, self-righteous, better than you? It's because it's based on religion. Somehow I've, I've earned it, I've achieved it. How could I ever feel better than anyone? So anytime you come around as someone that calls themselves a a Christian and they act like that, they don't get the gospel. They don't understand grace. How could I feel superior, tower over you? How could I ever feel inferior to anyone? Why would I ever feel intimidated or inferior to anyone? Because Jesus loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. The God of the galaxies came to this earth to rescue me, to love me, to adore me, to give his life for me. Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. I mean, that's, that should shoot you right through the ceiling here. I mean, so what? Someone, someone criticized you. So what? Someone rejected you. So what? You didn't get the job you wanted to get. So what? You know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever you're facing, whatever difficulty, it doesn't even come close it doesn't come close. It's a dewdrop compared to the ocean of his love upon us that's lavished upon us, and we would be called children of God. And that's what we have through Jesus Christ. And so, whoa, pretty amazing. And so when that begins to take hold, here's the next point on your notes. This is when you know you get it. I recognize what's at the center of my life and replace it with Christ. This is really, really important for you to get. And, and you're going to see this in the life of these, uh, the criminals and how they respond to their circumstances. So, so what I'm saying, how you respond to your circumstances tells you a lot about what's at the center of your life. So how you respond. So 
I recognize what's at the center of my life and replace it with Christ. Verse 39, one of the criminals railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So let me paraphrase that. In other words, if you get me out of trouble, if you change my circumstances, then I'll follow you, I'll obey you, I'll serve you. That's what he's saying. Now, there was a number of years ago, this was back during, I think, the 90s, and I don't hear much of it anymore, and that could be true because I don't hang with some, some of the more seeker-focused uh, churches, uh, but there was this kind of felt needs kind of an idea that if you meet people's felt needs, then they'll come to faith in Christ. Well, this guy's wanting his felt need to be met, but it's kind of an ultimatum for, for Jesus. It's like, you either get me out of this mess or I'm not going to follow you. Prove to me. Prove to me that you're the Messiah. Get me out of this mess. But I want you to notice the contrast here between, between this one and the next one, verse 42, the second criminal, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, I want to follow, obey, serve you, even if you don't get me out of this trouble. That guy gets it. That guy gets it. See, you can say that God is at the center of your life, but still trust something else for your real meaning, hope, and happiness, which is your real God. So, so we are good at hiding this from ourselves until something goes wrong with whatever it is that's at the center of our life other than Christ, our career, our wealth, our romance, our children. And, and what happens is that we become inordinately anxious, angry, and, and despondent. I mean, the emotional meter pegs out because what's at the, really at the center of our life is being threatened, blocked, or, or being, being lost See, you know you are getting it when, when Jesus is more when Jesus is more desirable and more satisfying than all that life can give or suffering or death can take away. You know that you are getting it when, when no suffering is too much to endure if it gives you a greater experience of the beauty and the glory of your Savior Jesus. You know that you are getting it when you stop justifying yourself by your career or your wealth or romance or children because you have all the justification for life and living you need in Christ Jesus. That's when you know you get it. And so what do you do? You, you recognize what's at the center of your life and you replace, you replace it with Christ. And so how do they get it? Here's how they get it. Last point, last, last section. How they get it so... So why can we say, why can we say with that second criminal, I deserve to be punished, but please reward me? Why can we say that? I deserve to be cast out, please take me in. Well, there's, there's kind of three thoughts, darkness, curtain, and with me. Darkness is the first one, verse 44. We see darkness coming upon Jesus for three hours. Jesus came to bear God's judgment for me. Both in Joel 2.31 and Amos 8.9, they associate, when you read Old Testament, and when they talk about darkness, is associated with the judgment of God. In verses 28 through 31, when, remember when Jesus said, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves, because the judgment of God that is coming will be so horrible that people will be crying out for mountains to fall on them. He took that for you and I. So, so really it comes down, here's your choice. Either Jesus pays for your sins or you pay for your sins. There's no other, no other way. 
Either Jesus pays, so by grace through faith in Christ. I'm kind of like, I'm in on that one, okay? A long time ago, I decided, ah, yeah, that's a good deal. I'll take it. Yes, thank you very much. And not only do I have my sins forgiven, but I have relationship with the creator of the universe? Yes. And I'm indwelt by his Holy Spirit? No doubt. Yep. And he's going to take my bad circumstances and work them for my good? Yes, absolutely. And he'll always be with me, never to leave me or forsake me? No doubt about it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and they just keep piling up. I mean, when you begin to understand what you have in Jesus Christ, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. But it's your choice. It's either going to be Jesus died for your sins or, or you, or you'll pay. Next word, curtain. Next fill in the blank curtain, verse 45. Oh, I love this. That is beautiful. That is absolutely, this is my favorite part of the, of the Christian life. We have union and communion with God forever. Romans 8, I just put Romans 8 there because Romans 8 covers that. Union and communion. Union and communion with, with Christ. Our sins can never be held against us. It starts off with that in Romans 8.1. This is not just the best part of the Christian life. It's life's most satisfying reality. See, see, when you hang out in the throne room of a holy king of the universe, the holy king of the universe who happens to be your father, believe me, you are not intimidated by anything. You are not intimidated by a thing. When you hang out with him, when you get to know him, when you walk with him, his perfect love chases away the fears. And what it does to us and the implications of this even more so. Next fill in the blank, with me. So you got darkness, he took our darkness, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom, four inches thick, so that we have access into the throne room of God. I probably ought to explain that a little bit more. Most of us, we just kind of take that for granted. You guys know what that meant when the curtain was ripped? There might be a few folks that don't understand that. That was into the Holy of Holies within the temple. And so the high priest could only go once, once a year, and they'd tie a rope around his, uh, around his waist or ankle, and they'd put bells on the bottom of his robe. And so if he didn't go through all the purification rites before he went in there and he was unholy in the least bit, guess what? He faced, he faced God and he faced the wrath of God and he was boom. And nobody dared go in there to retrieve him. They just drug him out. They pulled him out. And so what's it saying? Because of what Jesus did for us, we have access into the throne room of God. Can you believe that? That's crazy. I have access to him 24-7, and not based on your performance. Yeah, but I'm a messed up person. I know you are. <laughs> I've hung out with you, and you've hung out with me. We're both messed up. We're e I, I love what, I was talking to Darren about this, and this morning he said, we're equally lost and equally loved. Yes, equally lost, equally loved. And so, so even, when you're at your most terrible, when you go through the most terrible day, that's when you should even run that much harder into his arms of love. You have access. You, have, you can know the king of glory. You can know our creator. That's, that's the point of this. It's, I've never been able to get over that, and, and, the, and especially this next part, with me, verse 43. Today you will be with me in paradise, with me. What in the world is that about? The moment you believe in Christ, everything he has done, everything that he has done is true of you in God's eyes. You are as, as accepted, loved, and delighted in as if you had done everything Jesus had done. And I gave you a whole slew of verses there to show you that. It tells us in Romans 6, 5, we have been un united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Ephesians 2, 6, it says, we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. So when you're getting baptized, it's you're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of 
Jesus Christ. It's called substitutionary atonement. We talked about it last week. But what he did, he did for you in your place for your sins. And so you receive his righteousness. He received all of your sinfulness. And you stand before God, totally accepted, loved, and delighted in by God. And that's why it tells us in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, set your mind on these things. Let your heart be melted with the understanding of what Christ has done for you, changing every aspect of your life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. I can't help but think that there's maybe two two groups of people here this morning. I'm going to talk to each group of people with your heads bowed, eyes closed, and think about this. First group, maybe some of you, some of you maybe never really understood the gospel until today. And if that's you, here's your prayer. Here's how you should pray. Father, I finally get it. I finally get it. Though I deserve to be cast out, take me in. Because Jesus took my judgment for me, and because I believe in him, everything that is true about him is true about me. I'm accepted, loved, and delighted in, not because of what I do, but because of what he has done. That's, that's your prayer. That's your prayer. If you do that, you're getting it, and Jesus will take you in. I don't, I don't deserve to be taken in, but because of what Jesus has done, I can be taken in now. God, you receive me. You love me. You delight in me. You accept me. I thank you for that. That's the first group of people. Here's the second group. Maybe you have heard this before, but you are not living in the reality of it. Because, listen, if you knew how accepted, loved, and delighted in you are, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be so full of anxiety, anger, depression, envy, jealousy, helplessness, hopelessness. That would be chased away. So, so here's your prayer. This is what your prayer would be. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me to get it. Help me to be disciplined in habits of grace, Bible study, prayer, and community so that these truths will become a living reality to my heart, changing every aspect of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're taking communion.